What's up, everybody? Before we get the podcast started, I have a little favor to ask of you. Um, My city, Jacksonville, Florida, is having this contest for this uh, big magazine in our city called the Folio Weekly. And you can vote on the best original band and best restaurant, blah, blah, blah. In the description of this podcast, there will be a link where you can vote on best original band in Jacksonville. And I I would ask that you would please vote for my band Dancing with Ghosts. And then you can vote for best podcast in Jacksonville. And I would love it if you voted for Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries and got us some, uh, you know, local recognition. That'd be really tight. So uh, on to the Himalaya ad. Are you listening to this episode on Himalaya? If so, congratulations, because you're already using the best new podcast app out there. If you're not, you're missing out. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya is designed with you in mind and has a ton of cool features like curated, shareable playlists and collections made just for you. Aww. Along with personalized recommendations to help with content discovery. And the best part is, it's super easy to use! Exclamation point. It's definitely my favorite listening app, and I'm sure it'll be yours, too. Uh, so do yourself a favor, download Himalaya today, and be sure to follow Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries once you're there. All right, what's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 158 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Sunday, 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 September 29th, 2019. And just like that, the year is almost over. We're going into October, which means Halloween, and then November, which is Thanksgiving, and then that whole Christmas fucking thing that I just don't feel like dealing with. Anyway, I digress. Um, I am here yet again You've come to know her. You've come to tolerate her. Her name is Stephanie. Hi, guys. How you doing today, Stephanie? I'm just wondering why you started with such a depressing intro. We should be excited to go into the season. You should be grateful. Uh, He's I not just... a seasonal appreciator, folks. He does not appreciate seasonal flavors or seasonal activities. I think the whole seasonal flavor thing is stupid. I think if it's a good <laughs> if it's a good flavor, then it should be around all the time. But. But if it were around all the time, then people might not appreciate it as much. It's that whole adage of like you you get excited for something, and I think there's there's a lot of rhyme and reason and rightness in uh, seasonality of, uh-huh. of all yeah. things. Yeah. Right. So explain like vanilla flavor and like chocolate flavor. Those are those are available to be harvested all the time, and they're you their don't shelf have any you good. don't have anything to back that up. You're just talking out of your ass right I can, now. I can say that like fruits and veggies We don't need two people on this available. podcast who talk out of their ass. Only that's only that's only one person's job and that's my job. Let me finish. No, seasonality of uh goods is kind of fun, kind of important. I I like that Japanese mentality on the seasonality of flavors because it means that your stuff is more likely to be fresh and I'm about that. Oh my god. And it's exciting. Be excited. So anyway, this is a podcast about um, Unsolved Mysteries. We'll be doing two of those uh, episodes today. Mike, uh, his work schedule is just, I don't even, I don't even know anymore. I don't even care. <laughs> like, I'm tired of trying to figure it out. I, I, he just. Uh, he said he was, it should go back to normal, I think, next week. So you guys are only stuck with me for right now. But I think he's, uh, you know, Daddy Mike is uh, going to be back. We're not trying week. to kill Mike off, but at the same time, it's like. I don't want to put out a podcast by myself. I mean, I can do it, but it's just easier when I can bounce stuff off of somebody. And Stephanie just happens to be here every Sunday for band practice. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm just convenient, folks. That's, Pretty much. That's I, I'm convenient. I, I have a mouth that works, so I am just as able-bodied as the next guy. It's pretty great. Yeah. So I mean, and. You know, she's good at flapping her yap. <laughs> so she works, you know, and, and, and I, I, I don't think her voice is as, an, as annoying as mine, honestly, on the podcast, you know, so. That's probably the nicest thing he's ever said. Yeah, it's probably one of the nicest <laughs> things I've ever said to you, honestly, you know, take that for what it's worth. You can't just dole out compliments freely, folks. It, it, it's uh, true. Then they don't mean as much. Yeah. But no, um, 
since we're here, I guess we'll discuss the band front, as you might have already heard at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, you you guys need to go out and vote Dancing with Ghosts. So uh, Folio Weekly, we can the uh, local zine around here that highlights all things Jacksonville. We want to uh, win the best original band in that category. So uh, the link is right in the bio here. Uh, I won't berate you with this again, but uh, yeah, so vote on us for that. And also while you're there, vote on us for best podcast in Jacksonville. Because, you know, even though this podcast is international at this point, it'd still be nice to get some uh, some local props in my hometown. So uh, that'd be cool if you could handle that. Uh, speaking of Dancing with Ghosts, my band, Stephanie's band, um, we played a show Friday. We put a lot of promotion into it. Uh, so much we promotion. We handed out flyers. Uh, we, like We hit the streets in our face paint and handed out flyers the old-fashioned way. And we handed out these like custom thumb drives I made that uh, have our like business card attached to them. And, you know, it just gives people like a physical thing that they can hold that has our music on it and I spent like $100 on Facebook advertising for the show. And then all told, like four, no, six people came that were just, was just from our hustling efforts. And then all the other people that came were just people who, longtime friends, longtime fans, whatever. But the thing I take away from this is not that it was a failure because the room did have people in it. It wasn't like that. It created a buzz. Um, there were definitely people that we talked to that are like, oh my God, well, I've, he- I've heard of you guys, da da da. So I do think that this old school thing, like it, it's brand recognition, it's just marketing 101. Like if you see a billboard with the same unfamiliar bullshit on it, after about like the seventh or eighth time, it becomes familiar bullshit. And then you might take it more seriously. Um, so I feel like in our case, having more of our, uh, whether it's flyers or, you know, people talking about us, us talking about it, it at least puts the name in their heads. That way they may be more comfortable with, uh, you know, contemplating coming out to a show or something like that in the future, just by virtue of the fact that they've heard of us before. So when it comes to promoting, you have to, you have to, when it comes to anything that you want in life, anything, this is, uh, I'm sorry, folks, can can you just pull up a chair? This is my Oprah moment. Okay. (laughs) I want to have an Oprah moment with you guys before we get into the, the mysteries here. When it comes to anything you want in life that you don't have yet, it's all about breaking comfort zones left and right. And that's the biggest experience I've learned so far with just this band, for example. The things that we've had to do, the uh, comfort zones that we've had to step out of. I mean, just last night, I mean, I feel like I'm constantly in promotion mode now for the band. So I was at this nightclub and there was like goth night. And I was just just there to check it out with a friend. But while I'm there, I'm like, man, all these people look like people who would like our music. So I like stood against the wall for the longest time until I finally got the courage and alcohol in my system to just walk up to people and just be like, hey, what's going on? Can I ask you a question? You like this kind of music, right? Well, here, take this. And I had, you know, and it's just constantly breaking comfort zones left and right. And, And I found out something about myself. I can actually dance in a dance club just freestyling it not not doing a line dance or any of that corny shit you see at weddings though uh, he is known for so many line dances especially when drunk well as Don't a, as a wedding you. dj as a you. dj in general you you have to i mean those line dances are so goddamn corny and when i say line dances i mean like the electric slide cupid shuffle the wobble all that crap they're so corny but they're so effective because it really engages the audience uh, to get up on the dance floor because the moves are all the same. They're all syncopated. Everyone's doing the same thing. And nobody really enjoys getting on a dance floor if there's not a lot of people already out there and just like freestyling. They feel stupid. They feel embarrassed. You could do the Elaine. Yes, the little kicks. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, that was something I realized about myself that I could, you know, kind of just dance and not you know, be doing anything, uh, specific. And that was kind of a cool realization I found out about myself last night. I'm trying to take as big of a bite out of life as I can with what little years I have remaining being 31 years old. Whereas I, I, I have a leg up on him in that department. I think I started uh, freestyle dancing, uh, drunkenly on a cruise ship in my mid twenties and oh I haven't God. stopped, but now I do it sober too. So there's that. I wish she would stop. <laughs> but I won't stop. God, too much dancing. I'll never stop. I'm even dancing like 
sitting down at booths at restaurants. I just can't stop. I hate it. <laughs> her joy and her whimsy like bugs me for some reason. It really does because I'm generally happy pretty much all the time or content with stupid little things, a bite full of food, the comfort of laying down on the floor, whatever. I was always I'm just that, so easy to please. I was always that douchebag that had to like make fun of everything that was like cutesy or whimsical or fanciful like when I was younger. Like every like Disney thing, I was like, that's stupid. That's lame. <laughs> X-Men are cool. X-Men are cool. I won't argue that. And I, I just had more of this proclivity to like evil stuff or like wicked stuff or bad stuff growing up. Like 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 happy, cheery stuff just never it never did anything for me. And there's so much happy, cheery whimsy in Stephanie that I feel I must uh, squeeze it out of her. As a person, this is true. I mean, I love kittens as much as the next person, but you'll never see my room decorated in like super happy stuff. Because I'm not, I'm not a pessimist. I consider myself a realist. And realistically, lots of, lots of stuff sucks, but I'm not going to let it bring me down. And lots of people are stupid, and I hate stupid people. So there's that. <clears throat> yes, yes, but none of those listen to our podcast. So um, plow, plowing <laughs> ahead here... Um, the first case we're going to be talking about is that of uh, the Baron 52. It was a plane that should not have really even existed, according to the Paris Peace Accords. This is some military secrecy going on here that, uh, you know, we're sold on the fact that this stuff doesn't happen and that, oh, it's just a bunch of conspiracy nuts until you find out that it did happen. And then all of a sudden, all these conspiracy nuts don't look so silly anymore. Yeah. And I feel like this is kind of one of those cases, and um, I just thought it would be interesting to talk about. So on January 27, 1973, the Paris Peace Accords had been formally ratified, which meant that there would be no more American involvement in the Vietnam War. However, as many soldiers were planning to return home to their families, others were still involved in missions. Sergeant Peter Cressman, an electronics expert who flew top secret, secret reconnaissance missions, wrote an angry letter to his congressman. He stated that he and others in his unit were in violation of the Paris Peace Accords, being forced to continue missions despite the official end of American involvement in the war. He also stated that he wanted to refuse orders but feared the consequences. On February 5th, 1973, Peter, along with Dale Brandenburg, Joseph Matajove, Todd Melton, George Spitz, Severo Prim, Robert Bernhardt, and Arthur, Arthur Bollinger boarded an EC-47Q surveillance plane called Baron 52 to fly on a secret mission. The electronics experts, Peter, Joseph, Dale, and Todd, were situated in the back of the plane. The flight plan called for the plane to fly from Ubon Air Force Base in Thailand to Laos. The assignment was to monitor North Vietnamese tanks that were moving along into Cambodia along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And in the reenactment, they show Peter Cressman and he's like writing to, uh, you know, his his superior. And he's basically saying like, you know, that. I, I've, I'm looking through the Paris Peace Accords and they're saying there's no more American involvement in Vietnam, but everything's continuing here like it's a, just your average day at the office. You know, like, mm -hmm. what's the deal? I looked at all the fine print in the Peace Accord to see if I missed anything and, and I didn't. We're in direct violation of these peace agreements and, you know, I don't think this is right. It was a very articulate, uh, very well put letter with a lot of solid points um he definitely knew what should and should not be happening and he knew this absolutely should not be happening and so it puts him in a very uh tough predicament to be sure yeah and it's basically it was basically just like tough titty this is something that's happening you better not you know go around blowing any whistles or trying to be a whistleblower and you know you there is a secret war going on, you know, over in Cambodia and all these other places uh, in Vietnam. So at 11.05 p.m., the plane departed. Two and a half hours later, reports came in that the plane was receiving heavy ground fire. Five minutes later, radio contact ceased. 
Two days later, the wreckage of Baron 52 was located in, in the jungle deep inside Laos. At the time, the rescue team was only able to recover the remains of one of the pilots, Robert Bernhard. The team did notice three other bodies in the wreckage. Two were sitting in the pilot and co-pilot seat. However, they could not recover. They could not be recovered at the time. The other men were considered missing in action. Joseph Matajov's mother, Mary, recalled the day that she and her husband were informed of the crash. Two military men informed them that he was missing in action, that his plane had been shot down, and that he and others may have bailed out before the crash. Eighteen days later, however, the family was informed that there was no chance that any of them survived because the plane went into a tailspin after being hit. Peter Cressman's mother, Evelyn, remembered the day that she was informed that their statuses were being changed from missing in action to killed in action. She accepted the ruling at first, believing they had positive proof. A few weeks later, they received Peter's belongings. The letter he had written to the congressman made them feel suspicious of the official ruling. Peter's parents learned that four parachutes were missing from the crash site, suggesting that the four men escaped. They had spent five years writing to military officials Speaking, seeking specific details about his case. The Air Force consistently responded, based on the condition of the wreckage and lack of distress call, there was not enough time for the men to bail out. The, report, the official report concluded that all members of Baron 52 were killed in the crash. Now, what I thought odd about this is I'm assuming that uh, the military didn't count on that letter being in there, and I thought it was odd they didn't seem to search his belongings. Um because it seems like that would be a an odd thing to leave in there for very obvious reasons. Um, it seems like there's always just these little breadcrumbs that the government leaves behind in these suspicious cases. Like there was a case recently I remember watching on Unsolved Mysteries where a uh, U.S. submarine was bombed and there were supposedly three survivors. And this picture was published. And... In the picture, the family thought that one of the people in the picture were their kid that they thought died. So they had the the coffin exhumed, and uh, inside the coffin, there was these dog tags that were spotless. They were perfect. They did not look like they had been involved in any kind of a bomb or anything. And sharp, freshly pressed, like they had sharp edges that would have cut the skin if they were against you all the time and had been freshly burned, but not... Not in a, in a way that would denote an explosion, more yeah. of a controlled kind of burn. Like I held it on, under a lighter for a few minutes right. or something stupid. Very poorly executed, but I'm sure they didn't think that they were ever going to need that. So in this case, there, there's this letter, and, and it's like you would think that they would, the government would... Uh, I mean, I guess a dog tag situation, they figure, oh, the family's not going to look at the body anyway or, you know, look at the remains so we can get away with it. Mm -hmm. It's creepy when they opened up the casket and, like, there was, like, the suit on top of the bones. Didn't, and Didn't they say that the skeleton was too tall to have been him as well? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I watched that segment. Um, and, yeah, no, I, I think they said even the skeleton was too tall. And you'd think maybe there would be dental records or something, but I don't remember why they couldn't or didn't do anything with that i'm not sure so anyway in june 1978 the crestmans received a phone call from an attorney with the national mia organization the man claimed that he had seen evidence that at least four people on baron 52 survived and had been captured by north vietnamese forces he had learned of report by investigative journalist jack anderson which stated that u.s intelligence had intercepted some communication by Vietnamese forces shortly after downing of Baron 52, after the downing of Baron 52. <laughs> Terrell, they, they they, this article, they're leaving out... They are leaving out words here and leaving there. Leaving out words, and it's fucking me up. Making me sound less professional than I already sound. <laughs> Terrell Minarson? Minarson, because there can't ever go by an episode where there's a wor a names that I can read in every single article. This Terrell fella worked for the NSA in 1973 deciphering North Vietnamese messages. He found communication between North Vietnamese requesting transportation for captured American pilots. Due to the ceasefire, he believed that the only men that could have been captured were members of Baron 52. He believes that the men were captured after parachuting from the plane. After learning this information, the Matajovs went to the Pentagon 
and looked at their son's file. In the file, there were copies of the radio intercepts, although they were mostly blacked out. Very blacked out in the reenactment. Like, an entire page, it's all black except for, like, two lines. Yeah, which I always find that shit so fascinating to see, like, blacked out documents. Like, what did they black out? Like, I feel like, even back then, like, you know, if you were to do that to a document now, sometimes if you hold it up to the light, sometimes you can still read some of the print. So, man, I would have really scrutinized that. It seems odd. Like, in, in the digital era... That's not as much of a thing because you can just delete information or, you know, but with physical documents, you may very well be able to pick out pieces that you're not supposed to read. You know, that's where shredding comes into play. They believe they found enough information that showed that the government knew the four men had been captured. The Defense Intelligence Agency confirmed that North Vietnamese communications existed, which they kept calling communiques, which I love. Yeah, that was bizarre. They received the communique. That just sounds French or something. Communique. Yes. How are you feeling? I'm feeling communa okay. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was stupid. I should edit that out. Anyway, um, however, they stated that the nationality of the captured pilots was never specified. Okay, so? I think they're just trying to say that you can't prove that they were our guys. They could have been like other Asians or anything else. Yeah. I think is their point. I guess. Uh, they did not believe the captured men were from Baron 52. In uh, 1986, however, retired intelligence analyst Jerry Mooney testified before Congress stating that Peter Cressman, Joseph Matajov, Dale Brandenburg, and Ta- Todd Melton were prisoners of war. However, he claimed that they were being held in the Soviet Union, not Southeast Asia. Terrell believed that this was possible as prisoners with, quote, special knowledge were being taken from Vietnam to Moscow. However, there's no concrete evidence that POWs were taken from Vietnam to South to the Soviet Union. The Matajov family believes that the men's capture by the Vietnamese was covered up due to it occurring after the Paris Peace Accord. Mary Matajov spoke with Dr. Roger Shields, the Assistant Secretary of Defense at the Paris Peace Talks. He claims that he was told to cross off Peter, Joseph, Dale, and Todd's names from a government list of American POWs captured in Vietnam. However, Shields recently claimed that he was not ordered to cross off the men's names. He does state that he believes that the men were captured and may still be alive. This evidence gives the families of the missing crew members hope that they are still alive and will one day be found. And the results of this case is uh, is still unresolved. In November of 1992, a joint task force excavated the Baron 52 crash site and recovered the partial remains of seven men. None of the remains could be positively identified, but the military and many of the family members of the missing men believe that they are that they are their remains. In fact, Joseph Matajov's dog tags were recovered and identified. For unknown reasons, some of the families refused to have DNA testing done on the remains. In December of 1995, the remains of the Baron 52 crew were finally ra- laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery. Robert A. Cressman, the older brother of Sergeant Peter Cressman, further adds that his brother was positively identified by C-I-L-H-I based on dental x-rays. I don't know what the C-I-L-H-I. That's probably That's some, some organization. It's like some kind of acronym. Yeah. The uh, U.S. Air Force provided those x-rays to they did. his family, which showed a full set of upper and lower teeth. However, Peter had several teeth knocked out prior to the entry into the USAF, which adds further doubt to the identification. To this day, the Crestmans and Matajovs are still still searching for answers. Yeah, a couple notes on that. I, I knew as soon as they're like, oh, yeah, the you know, they were provided the X-ray, the dental X-rays. And it's like, bitch, their family should have copies of that shit. Like, no, that 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 would be too easily disproved if you just held up the copy that they gave you against, uh, you know, copies that you have prior to enlistment, because, I mean, what teenager doesn't have dental records somewhere? Um, between that and obviously the government is not going to want to be like, yeah, we were totally doing this thing that we weren't supposed to, even though you fucking got caught. If your plane was shot down and you have to admit that they were killed, then you know damn well you were somewhere you weren't supposed to be in the first place. So it's like, why even lie about it at that point? I guess to save face, you know, like, oh, they weren't supposed to be there at all. We didn't, you know, we didn't uh, authorize that mission because it looks bad. It just makes you look bad when you've signed a fucking peace treaty and you're like, ah, yeah, about that. 
We're yeah. not actually going to do that. I mean, at the same time, though, it's like they were monitoring North Vietnamese tanks that were like going into Cambodia through the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So it's like they were they were up to some some fuckery, too, you know, yeah, so it's kind of like. But we had already signed off that we weren't going to do that or not going to deal with it. We had no business being there at, after that treaty was signed is what it sounds like. So regardless of whether they were up to stuff is not up for debate in this case. Though if they were, we wouldn't sh- we shouldn't know about it because we shouldn't have been there. Oh, the domino <laughs> the, the, the domino effect of uh, communism back in the day, the Red Scare. The whole reason that, from my understanding, the whole reason the Vietnam War started. It was such a crazy, uh, ridiculous war that, uh, you know, I I just. Maybe someone out there can explain to me the significance of it, but to me it just seemed like it was based on fear, you know, a fear of, of communism spreading throughout the world. I, I still like, I, I feel like we still have that. I do, I do like a lot of history, but admittedly those wars are not something I know a ton about because I mostly tuned them out in school. I wanted like world history, older history. So I can't comment too much on that particular one. I'm more interested in World War II than I am in the Vietnam War. I don't know. I just... I don't know. There there was more at stake, I feel, with World War II than there was with the Vietnam War. I just feel like the Vietnam War was like kind of a ostentatious war. And World War II was like the fight against good and evil. <laughs> <laughs> For like the survival of the world, you know. Oh, and don't forget all the propaganda machines and... Jesus. Right. It's just, there's so much interesting stuff with World War II. But, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you know, props to anyone who served in any of those wars, Vietnam or whatever, you know, like like Absolutely. props to you, you know, like that's awesome, but uh, I, I guess I should learn more about it. Educate yourself, you idiot. Uh, anyway, moving on to a more domestic case of uh, violence, we have the, uh, the case of Joan Jeffries. This is a, uh, this is an interesting case. I thought it was, uh, I don't know, it, it kind of falls in line between frauds and murders. So it's like the best yes. of both worlds for me because like I love the fraud cases and the murder cases are good too. And the supposed uh, assailant is just this ner- nerdy <laughs> IT guy that does not look like at all like someone that you would expect to do this. No, but definitely not a good liar. Not convincing. Um, yeah, the, the title on this one is Joan Jeffries. When a businesswoman is murdered, her family believes it was not a random crime. Next on Lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as every uh, everything on Lifetime would be. Case details. On the night of November 29th, 1994, in Webster, Texas, 58-year-old Joan Jeffries died alone and scared in a suburban parking lot. How would they know she was scared? What if she welcomed death? Who are we to say? The killer shot her twice in the head at close range. Then he fired at her two more times. Both bullets pierced her heart. No one has ever been charged with the murder, but Joan's family said they but Joan's family is sure they know exactly who killed her. A former business partner named Sam Patel. Kelly Walker is Joan's daughter, and she says, um, I think Sam Patel had the motive, I think he had the opportunity, and I think the facts speak for themselves. Sam Patel denies any involvement. I did not kill Joan. I had no reason to kill Joan. I had no reason whatsoever. That was about the same delivery as he gave on Unsolved Mysteries. Joan was a clerk at an aerospace firm in Houston. Sam Patel worked there as a software engineer, but he had bigger plans. The company would be called Best Aviation, a commuter airline for gamblers, which that just kind of makes me laugh. Um, In April of 1994, he asked Joan to help him start the company. Joan's daughter said her mother was thrilled. When Sam initially offered this position to my mother, she was, of course, flattered and excited because the money was very good. Patel also put Joan on the company's board of directors. Although Patel was married, he and Joan often held meetings at the home of his girlfriend, Richie Guyote. Guyote. Um, And this, um, I believe, is her... Yes. Saying, this is quoting Sam's girlfriend. Yeah. Sam had an arranged marriage. He had told me that he could not get a divorce, and so we lived together as boyfriend and girlfriend, which to hear like, you know, like 30 or 40 year old people is funny to me. Yeah. Sam's Indian, by the way. So that explains the whole arranged marriage thing. Yes. But man, that's 
So <laughs> so bizarre. Like get some testicles, dude. If you live in America and you're bold enough to like live with your girlfriend when you're married, get the testicles to have a fucking divorce. I mean, this isn't like a male versus female thing, but like seriously, just just do it. Like, what are they gonna do? Like, they're, like you're in America. They're in India. What are they gonna do? <laughs> like, they're so far away. We do not like him anymore, even though his name is Sam. I mean, for fuck's sake, his name is Sam. Like, it's not even like he's got a super Indian name. Well, so... it's 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 short for Samir. Still, I've known some Samirs. Like, if he's living in America and he's he's doing this American agency and he's doing all this, like, I feel like you can just kind of like cut the cords but my family's not that close guys so i i i have never given a shit about any of that um i think it's funny when stuff. when people from uh like the the east come over mm-hmm. and they pick these like overly like westernized names like i used to work at this place uh that made euro wraps in the mall and uh my boss uh his he was indian and uh his real name was like bashakraba but he went by Abe. <laughs> yes, my name is Abraham. That that's was that was my birth name. It's like yeah, bullshit, buddy. <laughs> uh, Patel told Joan that overseas investors would be funding. Are you reading my stuff? Well, fucker, you weren't reading it. You were talking. Go for I'm it. not going to talk over you. I'm reading all of Sam's quotes. Oh my god, he just wants to do the accent. That's all he wants. Um, it but, it makes it more sub submerse it submerses the listener more if I'm making it seem like it's more like the segment. Are you done? Stop it. Uh, Patel told told Joan that overseas investors would be funding Best Aviation within a few months. Meanwhile, he wanted to get life insurance for the company's keep employees. Joan was insured for a quarter of a million dollars. Sam Patel explained. The initial idea was presented from the investor group because they wanted assurances that if something happened to one of the key people in the organization, that the company could function and that they would recover their investment. Joan's son, Daryl Daryl Jeffries, thought the move the move was suspicious. Um. Oh, okay, this is getting confusing because there's ten thousand quotes in this article. Basically, she's a sec- secretary, and I can't see a key point. I can't see that as a key point person. Nothing sounded right about that. Yeah, so basically said. to break all this shit down, the Sam Patel guy wanted to get life insurance on Joan, and she was merely a secretary. But he was basically building her up by making her think, oh, no, you have a very important part in this organization. Yes. And in all actuality, you know, yeah. his intentions were probably more dubious than yes. that. Patel agreed to pay Joan a monthly salary, but in the next seven months, she received only one check and it bounced. Kelly claims that her mother was wanted to quit, but Patel convinced her to stay. Patel says that is not true. Joan never approached me and said that she wanted to leave the business. There was a time when she said, hey, look, this isn't working out and I don't like it. She did come up to me and say that. (laughs) And the compromise we came up with was... Fine, you can continue to be part-time until you feel comfortable, and we'll go out and get somebody else to work part-time also. This is hysterical for me, because it's like, yeah, no shit, I don't want to be in your in, in your business anymore. You literally haven't paid me, and I'm telling you, I don't want to do it anymore. And you're like, oh, it's okay, you can work less. I'm still not going to pay you. But no, she never said she didn't want to work for me. I'm like, dude. It's like the worst lie I've ever heard because he literally is like, oh, no, she never said that, except she totally said that. But she didn't say it. Um, By then, Joan's back wages totaled close to four thousand dollars, which we know in today's money would be a pie around eight to ten thousand dollars. Yep. Fuck this dude. Two weeks later, Patel showed up at her apartment late at night. According to Joan's daughter, Kelly, he told Joan that he had a certified check for her. This is in quotes. Uh, She said that he had to get this certified check Xeroxed, which was odd to me and her. And yeah, that's strange. Sam showed up later claiming he couldn't find a Xerox machine because it's the middle of the night and that he needed to use Joan's phone. Patel told Joan that he was that he was on foot that night. And if he couldn't get a ride, perhaps she could take him home. When Kelly heard this, she said she uh, warned her mother in quotes. When she told me that he mentioned getting into her car, that, I think, was the firmest I've ever been with my mother, saying over and over, absolutely not. Do not ever let him into your car. According to Kelly, she was on the phone with her mother when Patel showed up a third time that night. Joan refused to let him in. 
Patel says Kelly is wrong. I had never met John like that, in that manner that Kelly had described to the police. Never, ever. That's a weird way of phrasing that. Kelly believes Sam was conducting a dry run for the murder. I truly believe it was a trial run, and I think that because I was on the phone with my mother and kept and my mother continued to say, Kelly, it's Sam, it, I stopped it that night. Two weeks later, after a business dinner with Sam Patel, Joan Jeffries was murdered. Joan told Kelly she planned to meet Patel and his wife, Penny, for dinner. Joan expected to get a check for her back wages. She also planned to hand over the company files and sever her ties with Best Aviation. But Patel insists that Joan wasn't planning to quit. I asked Joan to meet with me. I, I, I can give you the check. I can... You can give me the files. We can arrange for our meeting with the investor group for you to be there. And that was the purpose of the meeting. Patel and Joan left the restaurant together around 10 p.m., but Joan never made it home. By 9 a.m., detectives were in the parking lot, were at the parking lot crime scene trying to piece together what happened. Joan's purse and keys were missing, but she was still wearing her gold and diamond necklace. According to... Detective Sergeant. Thank you. That was we oddly abbreviated. Detective Sergeant Charles Probst, Probst of the Webster, Texas Police Department, robbery didn't seem to be the motive. Because of the multiple gunshot wounds to the body, it would indicate that the offender is known to the victim or had a grudge or something of that nature. The first interview that we had with Sam Patel, he told us that he had not been in Joan Jeffrey's car. Later, in the second interview, he changed his story and said that he had, in fact, been in Joan's car and that we would find evidence of such in her car. Sam said that he and after he and Joan parted, he went to his girlfriend's house, then rode his bike around the block a few times. Yeah, real normal. <laughs> Richie told investigators, I opened the door and Sam was there with a shirt wrapped around his neck. And I said, you know, you know, what are you doing without your shirt? You know, it's cold out there. You're going to catch a cold. And he said, I've been riding my bicycle. Sam explained being shirtless. I was hot, you know. I, I hadn't I, I hadn't ridden a bike. I hadn't done any exercise in months and months. And you know, I was going into the house. I took my shirt and I had it over me and I was walking into the house. Like in the in the the Unsolved Mysteries case, he literally is explaining that he I guess either rode his bike there or he got there and immediately rode his bike before going in the house. He just had this urge to Ride his bike. Like, man. The, the, late at night. Man, I'm just such a fat ass. That after eating all that food, you know what I need to do? Ride a bike. <laughs> I should not have gotten the molten cake at the Applebee's. Because they were at an Applebee's yes, in the reenactment. It was a very old, like, 90s Applebee's. But you can literally see in the back window the Applebee's logo, like, inverted because they're inside the building. But, uh, yeah, so it's like... I mean, I guess if I ate Applebee's, I'd want to like ride a bike too to like get get it out of my system as soon as possible. So it's maybe true. maybe that's what he was trying to do, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, he's like, this was a terrible decision. Richie believes he was hiding evidence of blood. That shirt has never been found. I think it's a very crucial piece of evidence because he would have he would have had to reach across Joan to take the keys out of that, and and that shirt would have had a smear of blood all up the arm. Sam still claims he has the shirt. There are no blood stains on it. I have it in my closet. And if whoever wants it, if the Webster Police Department would send me a real nice note saying, please, could we have the shirt? I would be glad <laughs> to hand over the shirt to them. What a douche. Yeah, this is like, you know damn well, like he's just so talking out of his ass because, yeah, they're just like, yeah, no, we don't want that evidence that you claim to have, mister. Because it's not the fucking evidence, you tool. This is the thing about this guy. Okay, so when I'm first watching this segment, I'm thinking to myself, anytime someone has the balls to come, the, the, anytime the accused has the balls to come on Unsolved Mysteries and defend themselves, I instantly think they are less guilty, usually. In this case, <laughs> Sam appearing on Unsolved Mysteries to defend himself did his ass no favors. Oh, no. He did not come across as an innocent man at all. He at the very least, came across as somebody who was deceit, being deceitful or hiding something. And, yeah, I mean, the whole line about, you know, if the Webster Police Department would send me a, a note asking real nice for the shirt, oh, I would be glad to hand it. It's like, dude, fuck you, man. Like, like, you should be concerned if you weren't involved that your co-worker was murdered and that you could clear your name. Those are two very important things. I don't think... 
a police department ever has to write a real nice note. It's it's called a fucking warrant, first of all. Like, that's cute that you think they have to ask your permission. Um, well, I mean, at this point, they kind of do <laughs> just based on the fact that they don't have anything that directly ties him to this. But, like, asking real nice. Fuck you, dude. It just shows that this guy does have some kind mm-hmm. of a narcissist kind of ego side to him. Like, oh, yeah. You know, ask me real nice, bitch. You know, it's like. Yeah. Uh, and then it goes on to say inv- immediately after he's like, oh, they didn't ask. But wait, investigators say that Patel has never been willing to give that to give them that shirt for Jones daughter. Kelly Patel's refusal is just one more sign that he pulled the trigger. I think Sam is responsible for the murder of my mother because he had a life insurance policy out on out on her for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. She was ending her business relationship with him that night, so he needed to do it that night while she was still an employee. Patel insists that the accusation is completely groundless. The very next day after her death, the board of directors all got together and we decided that we would take the entire proceeds from the insurance and either give it to the family, donate to some local charity that would leave a lasting memorial for Joan, or a combination of both. And I love that that's the very first... Because, I mean, her body was found at 9 a.m. So that was moving on that real quick. Um, you know, and it basically uh, goes on to say that the case of Joan Jeffrey's murder is still open. It is still unsolved um, to this day. And that's uh, shitty was, simply because they don't have proof. I loved in the reenactment the part where Sam comes over late at night yeah. and he has to get the, yeah, he has to get the check Xerox and he's in. And, and, He's not able to find the Xerox place, but he's still just kind of like lingering in the yes. foray of the house. And at some point, uh, he he goes outside while uh, Joan calls her daughter. And then Sam knocks on the door again, and the mom finally opens <laughs> up and goes, Sam, go away. Yep, and just shuts the door. <laughs> and it's just... <laughs> yeah, in the, in the, uh, the reenactments, they also... Um, you know, he, he kept showing up and at one point he's he's like oh well i don't have a ride you know um you know perhaps you will give me a ride or i will call my girlfriend and she will bring me a what a rent a car i'm like what is she gonna do fucking walk why does she have to rent a car why are you out here how did you get here (laughs) like it's all so shady and why are you showing up multiple times in the middle of the night i would not be humoring his ass like get the fuck off no no i'm not doing any of this with you (laughs) but my tolerance for people is low so there's that. I, I'm not all that nice. Yeah. I mean, this is a pretty open and shut case. You would think he's got the means. He's got the motive. Uh, he's he's I mean, those are pretty much the only two things you really need. Yeah. He knew case. his ass. He knew his ass was caught. So, of course, he's like, no, I you know, we decided to give it to her family or donate it to charity. You decided that immediately the next morning, even though her body was found at 9 a.m. In January uh, uh, 1996, Joan's children filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Sam. Its outcome is unknown. No charges have ever been filed in the murder. How is the outcome unknown? Should not all that be? Wouldn't that be public information, or does it depend on the state that they live in? I'm not sure. I'm used to living in Florida, where everybody's business is everybody's business. I don't know if that is the same across everywhere. I just figured if it's a lawsuit situation, that would be. Yeah, I mean, supposedly that's why there's so much Florida man stuff out there is because in Florida in particular, there the news is and media is just a lot more open with sharing uh, these kind of uh, arrest records and cases like that than uh, other states. I want to think it's that and not all of the meth and our warm temperatures. I, I have heard that places with warm temperatures tend to have more crime, but if that's the case, I feel like you're going to hear across it. Pr- I, th- I, I, I think that would be true because, I mean... <laughs> It's just too fucking cold, to, you know, sometimes. <laughs> like, I just don't want to go commit robbery tonight, man. It's like snowing and it's a pain in the ass. Yeah, I mean, the snow makes it hard to get around when it's hot. I mean, And it fuck. leaves footprints. Yeah, that too. I mean, granted, we have like mud and stuff and that can also, that is done in many people. But uh, snow is kind of, you know, undeniable in that fact. Like if you're trudging through the snow around somebody's back door, they know that someone has been there. Um. So yeah, I don't know if that if there's any uh, proof of that. I know heat makes me crazy sometimes, so I get that. But I don't do meth. Or, I just or don't. Bath salts. I just don't like the fucking cold. The cold fucks my night up, and that's when I'm mainly active. the The heat only fucks my day up, and that's fine because I can just stay inside. I don't really go outside anyway during the day. 
But at night, I like to go out. I like to be outside, blah, blah, blah. I'm, yeah, I'm a vampire, I know. Yes, he's always wandering around outside at night. I'm sure his neighbors have questions at this point. But, uh, but They've no. just There's a lot of acceptance, I think, with the neighbors at this point <laughs> that he just does what he does. He's never, you know, harmed anybody or anything. So, I mean, we just, you know, we see him outside at 4 a.m. jumping on a tree branch, you yeah. know, and. Oh, he's he's setting things on fire again. But I I guess it's it's you know you haven't caused them actual duress yet. It's even worse because so. I'm talking on the phone using my headphones, yep. so they don't even see me cradling a phone against my ear. It's just me hands free, <laughs> jumping around, looking around at my yard, picking up rocks, looking at them, taking pictures of frogs. Yep. Like it doesn't look normal. It looks it looks suspicious. All of it looks suspicious. But I guess if you look suspicious all the time, they're used to your antics. Whereas like for me, uh, I occasionally like to uh, indulge in some night gardening because I have the skin of an albino. And even though I am born and raised in Florida, I'm three fourths Irish, guys. I will burn. So sometimes I'll do a little night gardening. And I'm sure my neighbors have questions if I'm out there just digging you know, digging away at a hole uh, in the middle of the night, but I've been known to do it. It's a luck. It, like, luckily, my neighbors are pretty cool because occasionally we bring them cookies that are fresh baked. So maybe they think I'm buying them off. I don't know. Um, but they have not asked questions about it. They're just like, oh, I liked your new tree. Hopefully there's not a dead body under it is the the underlying message, I think, there. Like, maybe if you pay us in cookies, we won't ask any more questions. So I do that. Well, that's very interesting, Stephanie. Thank you for that little Shut up. Uh, anecdote. Shut up. Wow. It's a lot of aggression over there. Yeah, I'm a little testy. I'm hungry. I'm hungry, too. What should we eat? I have no idea. I'm, I'm either between um, Burger Fi, which is hamburgers, uh, or Moe's, which is burrito. Um, but I already had a burrito for, for breakfast. But, I mean, I'm, I can eat another one. I don't know. I don't know. I I recognize that I have no leg to stand on since I got to pick the place last time for the first time ever. Yeah, we had a uh, Asian street fair last time. I got him eating with chopsticks, you guys. He committed. He ate the entire thing with chopsticks. I was very proud. I, I never pick foreign fare for us. I just always let him pick because he needs his comforts. But uh, he, he, he went outside of his comfort zone, and I appreciated that because I really wanted some some good... Asian food. It's not that I don't like Asian food. I just, uh, how my family used to get Chinese food was they would get a shit ton of it, all different kinds of varieties. And I'd have like five, six, seven different food items on my plate. And when you go to these, you know, normal Chinese restaurants, you get like one thing. You get like one thing of lo mein and Mm -hmm. and maybe an egg roll if you're lucky. In other words, it's a non-committal thing. He's afraid of the commitment to one food. Not um, enough food. And what if you don't like that particular food? And this wasn't even like regular Chinese food. This was like good sit down um, stuff. It was freaking fantastic, though. I'm glad we went. Um, yeah, it was pretty good. I don't. I don't know if I'd want to go there again, like anytime soon. But it was all right. So yeah, us talking about food pretty much lets you know that this podcast has run out of gas. <laughs> um, you know, I, I. I don't know. I, well, I, it's either that or beating you over the head with the band stuff, like. That's it's pretty much all I have going on outside of this, so I don't have extra stuff to bring to the table that you don't already bring to the table because it's what you do as well. Yeah, I mean, m- me dancing last night at Eclipse that was kind of a cool new thing for me. Um, we have a tour that possibly might be happening in the Midwest next year. That's really really exciting, actually. Yes, we have a singular date uh, locked down, so I'm going to work around uh, trying to book. Uh, any p- possible festivals and stuff in the meantime. And we have lightly dabbled with the idea, since we're going to be up in the Midwest anyway, of maybe booking a date or two in Canada. So um, that could be really, really cool um, if there's some some Canadian podcast listeners, which I know that there is, uh, that might want to uh, show some interest in that. Um, that That is a possible Thing that I think would be well you worth live our clo- time. If you live close to the uh, U.S. The border. border, then there's a possibility we might be able to book a show. The U.S. Here. border kind of near like, you know, uh, Michigan, Michigan, Wisconsin, Wisconsin all, all that, that area, the Midwest. Um, but yeah, that's, that is possible that we could uh, book a show or two up there, up that way. 
because I think it, we're already up there. It would be kind of dumb not to if we can manage. So, um, so yeah, we may be coming that way uh, summer 2020. Yeah, but anyway, that's uh, the end of the podcast proper. If you want to hit us up on Patreon and ca- uh, kick in a few bucks every month, you will get the podcast earlier than everyone else. Um, you can give us suggestions for t- topics that you would like to hear us cover on this podcast, and they go to the top of the suggestion pile. Um, if you want to join our Facebook group that is vibrant and fun and full of a bunch of people who also love Unsolved Mysteries, you can go to Facebook, go to the Groups tab, and type in Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. There'll be a few questions that it's going to ask you. Answer those questions, and you're in the group, baby. And there's some really cool stuff in there. If you're a fan of that show or our podcast that I'm not going to tell you about. Um, and finally, my YouTube channel. If you want to check out additional content that I do, or if you want to hear my band Dancing with Ghosts, you can go to YouTube.com slash Dancing with Ghosts. My most recent video was uh, basically a comparison video between the four big new rock albums that have dropped this year. Although I know Tool is not considered a new rock band and Rammstein isn't really a new rock band either. I'm basically comparing Korn's new album, The Nothing, Rammstein's new album, which is Untitled, uh, Slipknot's new album, We Are Not Your Kind, and Tool's new album, Fear Inoculum. And I'm putting all three albums, or all four albums up against each other, doing a little review and seeing which one fared the best. Um, I guess I can give you a little little sneak peek on that. I, I didn't really care for many of them, and Tools I especially didn't care for. I was very disappointed in, in Tools' new album. I know a lot of their fans waited a lot of long time for that, and uh, they waited a long time for Mediocrity, which sucks, but... I guess that's the name of the game nowadays. I don't know. A lot of these bands that I really liked growing up are just, they're just really going through the motions in a way that is mind-blowing to me. I mean, any band that I grew up loving, it's like any of their new material is pretty awful. Blink-182's new album is awful. Um, Just, I can keep going down the list. Uh, Some of them have also had member change out as well, or maybe they haven't adapted to the times as well. I honestly just think it's laziness. I think they've they they've 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 you know earned their pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. They're coasting. There there's no hunger. There's no uh, cr- there's a lack of creativity. There's a I mean creativity is something that yes it does in, inspiration does hit you, but then there's also times where you kind of do have to just lock yourself inside a studio with an instrument and and fuck about until something comes up. And I just feel like a lot of these people don't want to do that or they want to make something that they feel like is going to be a sure thing because they just want to retain the fans they already have and they're not really interested in making new fans. So they don't really want to challenge people. Like Blink-182's last album, Nine, I think it's called, is just one of the most slickest, just commercial, disposable garbage albums I've heard. I mean, I thought their last album, California, was bad. This one is so much worse. And then you have this other, uh, you know, issue with established bands where it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you're putting out stuff that um, is, you know, like in trying to change or keep up with the times or what have you, you're going to possibly turn off old fans. Oh, they've changed. Da, 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 da. And then you have people like me. Uh, if I have a band that I like and they put out an album that's a regurgitation of the last one, I get pissed because I'm like, I've already heard this. I don't want more of this. Evanescence being a perfect example. I liked them a decade ago after they put out their second album and it was the same as their first album. I was no longer interested. I was like, you're a one trick pony. Congratulations. You do that one trick well, but I'm bored now. And so I do not listen to them anymore. There's a way to evolve yet still retain your sound. And it's very fucking difficult. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's done so, so little. But, they should become more impressive. Like I want to see them, their skills build either vocally or instrumentally or uh, in crafting the the song. Uh, you should you should be able to see a progression. Yeah. Of that. Like a perfect example I can think of for what I was just talking about: evolving while still keeping your sound, but 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 pulling out that next level, that next layer would be Green Day. They after their albums in the '90s, they released an album I think in 2000 called Warning. 
And it was a very kind of lighter album. It, it didn't really have the teeth that their previous albums had. And they were kind of, that was kind of seen as like the sunsetting period of their career. And then like three or five years later, or whenever it was, American, American Idiot, Idiot comes out and it just blows everyone <laughs> the fuck away. Totally rejuvenates Green Day's career. Totally opens them up to a new generation. And it was a completely new thing, yet still retaining that Green Day sound. American Idiot, the title track, sounded like Green Day. But, it, you know, if you listen to the album, it's this whole concept thing. And it just that it was a total uh, evolution in the in the right way. And that and, you know, Metallica, this one's a little bit more controversial, but you go from, you know, what uh, Master of Puppets to the Black album and again, they retain that Metallica sound, but they had, you know, this pop sensibility, but it was just the right amount. And that, that album was gigantic. So it went platinum like five bajillion times, you know? So there are examples where it, it does happen and it can work, but man, all these bands now, like, I just feel like they're, they're, they're too old and and out of touch to, to even want that to happen. So they're like, eh, let me just, it sounds like some shit that I would have done. Let me just throw it out there here. Fucking eat it up, you fucking yeah, monkeys. I'm, I feel like I'm fortunate that though a lot of my favorite bands died in like 2010, some of the ones I still keep up with, they're not working on like, most of them are not working on like, oh, we're, we've been doing this for 30 years. No, you know, they're at about that halfway point. So I've gotten to watch them grow so much in that time. Like Falling in Reverse is a, a big one for me. And it's been fun to watch them grow. But I also love bands like Duran Duran. They're old stuff, though I respect that they, you know, they were like the pop princes in the 80s. Their new stuff is way better. It like they're so much more dynamic and they're much better songwriters now. Like their stuff is much more complex than it ever could have been back then. So back then I humor it. I dig it. But like, you know, I, I got into them more so because of their newer stuff. Uh, their astronaut album was my starter, really, and it was fantastic. And that was, I think, middle school for me. But they've just continued to evolve and keep with the times and keep current. Um, you know, and even though they're not in the forefront of everybody's minds, I see them every single time they come. They're amazing, you know? Yeah. So anyway, check out my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash dance with ghost. Stephanie, thank you for helping us out once again. Yeah. And uh, until next week, we'll talk to you guys later. Have a good rest of your night. See ya. Ooh, he's taking Mike's sign off. <laughs> Very brazen. <laughs>